Good morning, everybody. Let me scoop this up. I need room to roam. Has anyone noticed the theme already this morning? Victory, but freedom. Freedom. He, uh, David started off talking about reading scriptures about freedom. He sang about freedom. Marion talked about freedom. Holy Spirit wants us free. He wants us free, and I'm actually going to share something today. Uh, it could be new to somebody, but if you've been around for a while, this is just a reminder, but we all need this reminder. Um, we, you know, just for putting things online, you have to come up with titles of stuff. I'm not one of these guys that, you know, likes to do all these titles and things. But if I were to call this sermon something, uh, I think I'm going to call it perfect love. The word perfect in the Bible means mature, complete, mature. So mature love, complete love, perfect love. Uh, but if there was a subtitle, like if it was a book, you know, the subtitle is usually longer. It would be put that finger down. So we're going to talk about that. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Trinitarian theology. And there's an amazing book. I literally read it the day after uh, I preached that message. It's by a guy named C. Baxter Kruger, and it's called The Undoing of Adam. If you've not read that book, please, 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 I cannot encourage you strong enough. Go buy that book and immediately read it. It's not very long, but it potentially could be the most life-changing book that you've read. Um, C. Baxter Kruger, uh, The Undoing of Adam. R amazing book. So what I talked about a couple weeks ago is the radical revelation that Jesus made fully plain that God is three in one and that there always has been from eternity past a self-sacrificing, mutually submissive, other-centered, unfettered in relationship, passionate love flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit. Always has been. Never a time that there wasn't. And all theology from the early church flowed out of that Trinitarian understanding. In their mind, creation flowed out of that. I mentioned that um, every pagan god, the reason that they created anything was always a selfish reason in paganism. That their gods needed something, that the gods were lonely, that the gods needed slaves, that the gods needed something. And they created out of need. But the Trinitarian understanding uh, is that God had no need. He had no loneliness. He had no lack. He had no boredom. He, he, he was fullness and completion and relational harmony and self-satisfaction all within himself. So anything that came out of him, anything that was created was an act of an overflow of that love, not because he needed something. And the wonderful, amazing truth of the gospel is that when Jesus became flesh, when he took on flesh, he actually did it to become a man so that he could bring a man into that love relationship that always existed. In other words, God wanted us fully adopted 
and experiencing the fullness of the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit experience every moment of every day from eternity past. During worship, I was just thinking about God created creation. He created creation. He just is, and from him, creation and life springs out. Life flows from him. So when we get near him, when we're with him, when we're in him, life can't help but happen. Life can't help but happen. God wanted us included in that Trinitarian love and in that relationship. Would we ever think it strange to see a toddler asleep in the arms of its mom or dad? That's like one of the most precious things, right? You see a a one-year-old or a six-month-old or a nine-month-old, they've been, or two-year-old running around and they just get exhausted and they fall asleep and they're drooling on their mom or dad's shoulders and they're just like dead weight, sandbag, limp, just in the arms of their mom or dad. And it's the most precious thing because we understand that that means the child feels absolutely safe and secure and at peace, and accepted, and welcomed, and it knows I can completely let go in this place. It's a sign of a healthy relationship and a healthy view that the child has of that father or of that mother. We would never actually say, hey, dad, you can't let your kid just rest like that, that child's way too comfortable in your arms. There should be some nervousness from your child when they're around you. There should be some hesitation from that kid. They should not be that at peace around you. They should want to sleep on the floor before they sleep on you. They should feel like they aren't good enough to be at rest in your arms. No one's ever thought that. We would never say that because that's a sign of what? Dysfunction. That's a sign of unhealthiness. Yet, we still will preach a gospel or we still believe a gospel that makes us uncomfortable in God's presence. That makes us feel ashamed in his presence. If we want to experience, and if it is true that God really wants us to experience the fullness and the freedom that comes from that Trinitarian love, then there cannot be shame. There cannot be fear. There cannot be hesitation. There cannot be anxiety. There cannot be a, a, a lack of rest. But how many of us really, on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment existence, feel that kind of rest with the Lord? Feel that kind of peace with the Lord? The way a, a little baby would with its father or its mother. Something is wrong. God is at war against those things that would hinder us from being at rest, at peace, experiencing the freedom that comes from that Trinitarian love and that relationship. This is what Jesus was incarnated for. This is what Jesus died for. This is what he 
killed our old man for. This is what he raised himself, and the Father raised him from the dead. This is why we're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. To experience the fullness of that. So we're going to look at a little thing today. What is stealing that freedom? What is stealing? What is causing the Father who just wants us to rest on his shoulders and feel completely welcome and safe that we can just go, ah. What is holding us back from that? Lots of things, but we're just going to look at one thing this morning. We would never say that God wants us at rest in his love, but there's something that we all do that creates fear, unsettledness, maybe that God only loves me in part. It's good enough for me to sleep near God on the floor, but I definitely can't be in his arms. One of those things is this, the finger, judgment, self-criticism, actually self Criticism, self-judgment, self-accusation. That's one of the things. There's a scripture, um, if you've been around a long time, you've, you've heard this, but this is, I think, one of the most profound scriptures in the entire Bible. And it sent me on a months-long journey that actually changed my life. And it's 1 Timothy 1.8. And it says this, Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul was talking to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, the law is good. But there is a way you can use it to where it becomes not good. Not healthy. And I was stunned by that statement. And I had to ask myself the question. Do I even know? How to use the law unlawfully? Because if I don't know what the unlawful use is of the law, could I possibly be using the law in a way that's detrimental and not healthy and not the way God designed it to be? If you don't understand that scripture that I just read, if you don't understand that works, how that works, chances are, you are using the law in an unhealthy way, in a manner which God did not intend. So it sent me on a months-long journey to answer that question and figure out, what does Paul mean by this? Well, what is the law? Is it just the Old Testament law? What about the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament laws? We would all say we're not under the Old Testament law, but what about when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament? Now the Old Testament law is in the New Testament. Do we have to follow that? Well, what about the Ten Commandments? We go, well, yeah, we need to follow that. Well, then why don't you honor the Sabbath? Oh, well, because, oh, I don't know. Which laws do we follow? Which ones do we know? Do you know there's a lot more do's and don'ts in the New Testament than there is in the Old? There's a lot of them, a lot of do's and don'ts. So is Paul only talking about Old Testament or is he talking about New Testament? Or is he talking about an overall principle of this is how the law is supposed to be used? And the law could be New Testament, Old Testament, could be lots of stuff. 
Here's some of the things that shockingly Paul says about the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, he calls it the ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Romans 7, 5, he says the law arouses sinful passions. Romans 7, 6 says the law makes me a slave. Wow. If you're using it unlawfully, you're bringing death, condemnation, arousing sinful passions, and you're making yourself a slave. Wow. Now I'm going to explain the rest because I want you to be a Berean. You need to answer this question for yourself. There is an answer to this question. Uh, that's not what I feel like the Lord wants me to talk about today. But which ones do we follow? Which ones of these laws? Well, we can make up our own laws. It doesn't matter what rules or laws. You can make up your own. You're too fat. You're too skinny. Your nose is too big. You're too old. You're too young. You're too passive. You're too impatient. You're too whatever. Right? That's a law. Do this. Don't do this. That's not good. That's good. We can make up any rule that we want. Does that law apply? Yes, I believe it does. I believe Paul is talking about the general principle. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was to say, this is the standard of righteousness. Now, try to live up to it. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't live up to it. Your flesh won't let you. You're not strong enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not holy enough. You need a savior. You need to die to yourself and live to Christ. You need the Lord to put that man of flesh to death and let the Lord Jesus raise you to new life. But I want you to do your own research. I want you to do your own homework. You need to answer that question. What is the lawful use of the law and what is the unlawful use of the law? So, any rules that we want, whenever we point the finger at ourselves, whether we take an Old Testament commandment, a New Testament commandment, or whether we say, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too bald, I have, uh, I'm too old, I have a girl name, or whatever, whatever excuse or reason we have to point the finger to condemn ourselves, we are using the law against ourselves. So whenever we point the finger at ourselves, applying the do's and don'ts, the should have, the could have, the shouldn't have, that you could be doing better here, that you could be doing better there. We're applying the law to ourselves, and we're not making ourselves more righteous. We're not making ourselves better. We're ministering condemnation and death to ourselves. We're giving a reason for God and the world to reject us. Now, can you imagine that little toddler saying, I'm just, I'm just too obnoxious for my father to love me. I'm just, I make messes all the time. I still poop in my pants. How could he possibly want me to be near him? But they have to feed me all the time. I don't make my own meals. I don't pay for myself. They have to buy everything for me. I can't possibly be at rest in my father's arms. There's got to be something he's holding against me. There's got to be. That, that's, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. It would cause a separation in our hearts. 
between the love of the Father and us, it would cause a barrier and it would cause us not to be at rest. It would cause us not to be at peace. We're literally giving the reason for God and the world to reject us. We're amplifying and sometimes even creating shame that then creates fear of exposure and therefore rejection. God doesn't want us afraid to come into his arms. He doesn't include us into his Trinitarian love just so we can be fearful in it, ashamed in it, uncomfortable in it. If we're always pointing the finger at ourselves, being self-judgmental, self-critical, we cannot possibly feel free like a little boy or a little girl running into the arms of our Father. There will always be a fear. There will always be an unsettledness. There will always be a lack of rest. There will always be a, well, I know he mostly loves me, but there's definitely some things he thinks is yucky in me. He mostly welcomes me. We will never experience the true rest and the true freedom that we were meant to have. Paul had this personal revelation. Paul had this personal revelation. This is what Romans 7 is all about. This law that condemned him and made him feel guilty. He said, I tried to fulfill the law. I tried to do it and I couldn't do it. And my mind wanted to, my heart would, wanted to, but the harder I tried, the more I failed, and the more I felt guilty, and the more I felt ashamed, and there was this vicious cycle, and who's going to set me free? How do I get out of this trap? And he said, thanks be to God that in Jesus Christ, he made a way. There is a way to experience the fullness of freedom in God's presence. No shame, no fear, no doubts. There is a way. It's death and resurrection. He had this personal revelation. I'll read uh, Romans 7, 21 to 25. It's just good. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me. Someone mentioned the law of love. Marriage. Talk about the law of love. Right? Talking about the law. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? How am I going to get out of this situation? He said, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. The only way out of condemnation and shame is death. And Jesus took us to death. He killed that messed up guy, that old man. He killed that unacceptable girl. That old you that had faults, that created shame, that caused fear, that caused us to be uncomfortable in, in the presence of God. Jesus killed that guy. He put that guy to death. He doesn't exist anymore. And he raised us up with him in new life. The new you is perfect. The new you is perfect. The next question is, well, if I'm so perfect, why do I still sin? It's because we don't believe it yet. 
because we don't believe it yet. We don't fully understand. We don't fully grasp our new identity. We don't fully grasp what Jesus did for us yet. And because we still think wrongly about ourselves and God and others. If we really believe like Paul believed, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm a, I'm a brand new creation. I'm not that old guy anymore. He was able to come into God's presence with full confidence. Full confidence. Self-accusation, being self-critical, will never, ever, ever make us free. It is antithetical to the gospel. It does the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. It will always create something within us that causes us to be nervous and uncomfortable and fearful around God. It always will. It puts us right back under the law. It puts us right back under condemnation. And actually now we feel worse because now I'm supposed to be free, but I don't feel free. Therefore, there's definitely something wrong with me. Many of us have experienced this. It's a vicious trap. And if it's a vicious trap, where does the devil want you? Right there in that vicious trap. Right? If it's a catch-22 that you can't ever get out of, that's exactly where the devil wants us to be. He wants us to be, doesn't even have to be under his thumb or under his nose. As long as we're under our finger, the devil can walk away and we're stuck. We are absolutely stuck. We will never experience that freedom that Jesus bought for us. Never. I want to look at a couple of scriptures just to back this up. 1 Corinthians 4.3. But with me, Paul says to the Corinthians, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. said, I do not judge myself. That word judge, just so everyone can fully be on the same page, is a Greek word anakrinos, and it means to scrutinize. So I don't scrutinize myself. It means to investigate, interrogate, determine, ask, question, discern, examine, judge, search. And do you know in the NIV the King James Version, and the ESV, it's most often translated examine. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to let you examine me, and I'm not going to let any court examine me. In fact, I don't even do that to myself. God can do that for me. If he says I'm guilty, it doesn't matter. If you say I'm innocent, and I say I'm innocent, if he says I'm guilty, I'm guilty. But if you say I'm guilty and I say I'm guilty, but God says I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty. I don't scrutinize myself. I don't judge myself. Because that's what he used to do in Romans chapter 7. I used to do that to myself. And then I was in bondage. And I had no way out. But thank God Jesus took that old man of sin him to God. Now I'm not the same guy. I'm not that guy anymore. 
He goes on to say, next verse, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 4. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. He says, it's possible that there's something in me that's not right. It's possible that there's some motive that I don't see, that there's some lie that I'm believing. That's very possible. And just because I'm ignorant of it doesn't mean that it's not there. It doesn't mean that I'm innocent. However, he says, I don't judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. That's actually a pretty powerful and amazing statement. He's saying there might be something in him that is wrong or that he's guilty of, but he's not going to scrutinize himself and judge himself and put himself down. He's going to let the Lord judge him. I, I really like what Bill Johnson says. He actually had this problem himself and came to this revelation that he was ministering death and condemnation to himself by self-criticism and self-doubt and self-judgment and all these things. And he realized he had to stop, that the, Paul wouldn't even do that, and that he had to stop being judge over his own life. And the Lord told him, if you stay in fellowship, my people will point out your sin if it's bad. If you stay in my word, my word will convict you. If you stay in my presence, my spirit will convict you. You don't need to judge yourself. Let fellowship, let my presence, and let the word do it. You don't need to do it. In fact, you should fire yourself from that job because you're terrible at it, and I'm terrible at it. We're the worst. And if we ever said out loud to another human being what we sometimes say to ourselves, we would think you're a terrible person. But for some reason, we're allowed to say that to ourselves. It's okay to, to have a critical, negative, judgmental, condemning voice to ourselves. We feel like sometimes, I guess, if I'm not beating myself up, I'm just going to be a wild, crazy sinner. So beating myself up keeps me holy. I don't know. But I've come to realize, Paul came to realize, Bill Johnson came to realize, a lot of us have come to realize it's a trap. It's a trap. And it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what Jesus paid for. Can you imagine Jesus being taking on humanity, God taking on flesh, being dependent on his mom and dad, and they had to feed him, and he's resisting sin his whole life and being misunderstood and persecuted, and then he gets beaten and rejected and abandoned and tortured, and he dies. Imagine him going through all that just so that we can still be afraid of him. That's a, it's a, it's a horrible thought. That, okay, well, we're back in God's presence, but it's the Adam and Eve in the bushes with the figs leaf on near God's presence. That's not what Jesus paid for. That's not what God wants. It's not what he ever wants. But we can't self-criticize and not put on a fig leaf. We can't self-criticize and not find ourselves in the bushes. I, one of my friends had the Lord ask him this question once. It was, you know, when God said, Adam, where are you? 
It wasn't because God didn't know where Adam was. Adam didn't know where he was. He didn't realize what he had fallen into. Adam, what are you doing? Basically, what are you doing? Where are you? And the Lord said and with that same voice, he knew he was quoting that scripture. Is my buddy Stephon. And he heard the Lord say, Stephon, where are you? And he was like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> what am I doing that I don't realize I'm doing? Where have I put myself that I don't realize I've gotten myself into? Well, maybe ask you the question. Where are you? Where are you? Is there any anxiety? Is there any fear of rejection? Is there any unsettledness when you think about coming into God's presence? If there is, something needs to die. Something needs to die. Jesus died for us to stand innocent, shame-free, fear-free. God wants us at peace, at rest in his presence. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him, we live in Christ, and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. He gave us his spirit. David said it. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So, Jesus said, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, right? Right, yeah? Okay, we're certain? Jesus said, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Yes, he did. He said that. What is he explaining? The Trinitarian oneness, right? So, if we believe that we are in God, and God is in us, what is John explaining? We're in the Trinitarian love. We're in it. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There it is again. By this is love perfected with us or matured in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment to even think about God judging me if I have fear if I don't have confidence in thinking about that I have not been made mature in the love of God. In other words, if there's fear in your relationship to God, you are still immature in God's love. You have not been brought to the full place that God intends you to be. I'm, wow, we could just stop right there and meditate on that for a while, couldn't we? By this is love perfected, matured within us. 
so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So when it's not the day of judgment, should we definitely have confidence in God's presence? Yes. Yes. Why? Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There isn't any coming your way. There isn't any coming your way if you're in Christ. As David said, if you're not in Christ, you're already under condemnation. You're in trouble. But God wants to rescue you from that situation. Amen? So, we are supposed to have confidence in his presence. He goes on, verse 18. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. God is love. There is no fear in love. It's not possible that self-condemnation, self-criticism, self-judgment, self-hatred, self-whatever, self-examination, and not create something within us that creates fear. It's antithetical to the gospel. just brings death and condemnation. There is no fear in love. But, everyone knows the rest of this verse, perfect love casts out fear. Same word for delivering someone from a demon. Ekbalo. Expel. Like, it's a vicious force. Perfect love shoves fear out. It shoves it out. So if we have fear, we haven't been matured. We don't understand. We don't grasp the fullness of what Jesus has done for us. What does that mean? That when we think about being with God, when we go to pray to him, when we're in his presence, there's no fear. There's no condemnation. There's, we're like that little toddler that can just sandbag, fall asleep on our father. I'm, I'm at perfect rest. Not the way it should be. Perfected means brought to maturity. Whoever has fear in relationship to God has not come to the maturity of God's love. Let me just take this another step further. Well, I'm just going to leave this here because this is the starting point. If we cannot come to a place of rest, the maturity of this love, we can't possibly love another human being. We, we can't love them purely. This will affect our marriages. It will affect our relationship with our children. It will affect our relationship with our coworkers, everything. God's love gets brought to us or we get brought into God's love. We experience that love. We experience that freedom and that life and that rest and that peace and that joy and that acceptance. And then we can love our spouses. And then we can love our children. And then we can love our neighbors. Actually, this finger, often in the Christian world, is pointed here, but it's pointed out there a lot, too, at each other. What are we doing to each other? We're ministering death and condemnation and fear. And where there is no fear, love is not mature. 
The world is in bondage. It's crying out for freedom that comes when the sons of God, when there's an apocalypse, when the sons of God are unveiled, apocalypse of the sons of God. Creation is subjected to bondage, to fear. We are, we're creating fear. God wants to set us all free from every form of fear. Every form of fear. By this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence in the day of judgment. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So if we have confidence coming into God's throne, there, there can't be fear there, right? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The context of that statement is the Israelites entering into rest. And he says, strive to enter into rest. So that's the context. Enter rest. Enter rest, right? Let's read that context. Hebrews 4, 8. We'll go up to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me say that again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. Okay. Two radical things here. Two shocking things. One, not entering into rest is disobedience and falling into the sin of Israel. Like David said, I'll quote David. I didn't make that up. God wrote that. <laughs> Not entering God's rest is falling into disobedience in the sin of Israel. Why couldn't they get into the promised land? Because they, they had fear. What is our promised land as Christians? God's presence, the fullness of God's presence. What can keep us from the fullness of God's presence? Fear. Fear. That's first shocking thing, right? Second shocking thing, strive here doesn't mean strive. I mean, this is like a, a scripture that you're like, that's a contradiction. Strive to enter into rest. And we all try and figure out what does that mean, strive to rest. But how do you do that? I don't know. Well, that word strive doesn't mean strive. In the King James Version, in the NIV and the ESV, it's only translated once as strive, 11 times. 11 times that word appears in the New Testament. Guess how many times it's translated strive in the King James Version, in the NIV, and in the ESV? Once, right here. Well, what else is it translated as? Something different. That word means uh, speedily or eagerly. Speedily or eagerly or diligently. Hebrews 4.16. 
Let us then, well, sorry, let me read this again. If that word strive actually means speedily or eagerly, then it means let us therefore speedily and eagerly enter into that rest. That changes the meaning of that sentence. That's like a little kid that hasn't seen his dad. His dad's been on a work trip. He hasn't seen him for a week. And everyone says, dad's home, and they run out to the front yard, speedily and eagerly running into the arms of his father. Dad, I missed you. Speedily and eagerly. If there's fear, we can't run speedily or eagerly. We're going to be like the prodigal son coming home. Let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus included us in the love relationship amongst the Trinity and put our man of sin to death so that we could live free. Galatians 2.19, a couple more scriptures and I'm done. Galatians 2.19, for through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Very famous verse, but we don't really know that verse before. Or through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You hear what Paul is saying? I died to the law so that I might live to God. If we want to live to God, we have to die to the law, to the finger pointing, because that's all the law can do is point out where you're going wrong. It can't impart power to do right. It can't impart power. When it says do not lust, that you don't magically have power not to lust anymore. When it says do not be jealous, you don't have magical powers to not be jealous. It just tells you where you're going wrong, where you're falling short. It doesn't give you the power to actually perform it. You have to go to Jesus and die to yourself. Let him resurrect you and let him live his life through you. That's how it has to happen. So we can't be a law to ourselves. I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's not possible to live to the law and live to God at the same time. It's not possible to have self-condemnation and freedom in God's presence at the same time. It's not possible. 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is a good scripture. I love it. Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. He's speaking of the law. Held us captive. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way. Of 
the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I hope it's become very obvious to you that we can't have these two things coexisting and have freedom. We can't have these two things coexisting and have fullness of love. To be free, we just, we can't. We fight against the victory of Christ and we undermine the freedom and assurance that God wants us to have in his presence when we tell ourselves, you're making, you fail too much. Something's wrong with you. Look at yourself through second eyes. Doesn't work. This finger is much more dangerous than any weapon man has ever made. It can bring death to yourself and to the world around you. I'll end with this. Isaiah 58, 8 to 9. Very famous scripture. Everyone knows it. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your neck, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of the words. We have to start with ourselves. <laughs> then when we start with ourselves, we can take away the pointing finger from our spouses and our children and everyone else around us. It doesn't mean we don't say, hey, when you did that, it hurt me. It doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly confront. It means that, that we're not pointing the finger at each other. We're not condemning each other. We can't possibly be pointing the finger at each other all the time. And have freedom and have mature love that Jesus paid for. Is it true? It is. It's true. It's true. Hopefully, not many of you are doing this. Hopefully, we've learned to put our fingers down. Hopefully, we've learned. But we slip back into it. I slip back into it. And I need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded. Paul had to have this revelation. Paul did, so do we. God wants us free. 